You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. much worship team it is truly great to worship um, with all of you i would encourage you always to sit up at the front Um, it's amazing to get to hear everyone um, worshiping it's a tiny taste of heaven and it's a beautiful thing Uh, we are going to do part two um, in our sermon series a little two-parter that we are doing on the glory of god um, that we started last week and we're going to look at the greatest way to be loved and we're going to take a look at a couple of different verses but let's pray And then we can dive into things. God, you are absolutely incredible. And Lord, we come before you and admit our frailty and our failures. Um, And we, we praise you as God and King and ruler sovereign over the universe. God, we come before you this morning asking that you would move in our hearts and minds We pray for focus and attentiveness. Would you give us understanding um, where we lack it, God, that we would know um, you greater this morning, God, that there would be a deeper understanding of who you are, Lord, and that that would cause us encouragement, cause change in our hearts and in our lives in the way that we live. Lord, we thank you for just all the exciting things that you've brought to us, God, these Um, opportunities that we have coming, um, the amazing faithfulness that you've shown to us. Lord, we don't want to be like the lepers that left and never said thank you. So we just come before you and just say thank you. God, thank you for the opportunity for that building. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you for how you're moving and changing hearts and lives. It's so encouraging to hear that testimony. God, thank you for baptisms, Lord, and people proclaiming that they are yours and yours alone. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we dive into your word in your name. Amen. All right, so we're basically going to use two verses this morning. So I just want to read them to start. And then, of course, we'll have some other ones mixed in. Uh, the first one's this from 1 John chapter 4. It said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then in Zephaniah 3.17, I don't know how often you read Zephaniah, but there's a beautiful verse in here that says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. What an incredible verse, and we are going to take a look at those verses um, this morning. Basically, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little recap um, from last week in case you missed it. If you did miss it, I would encourage you to go back, um, whether on the podcast or on YouTube, listen to the full thing if you can, uh, but I'll give you the one or two minute synopsis, and then we're just going to look at a couple of questions that arise from the truth that we learned last week, and we want to deal with them, and we want to learn some more truth this morning. So first, the recap. So if you remember last week, we looked at a number of different scriptures, and they all pointed to one thing, right? They all pointed to the fact that God loves his glory above anything else, and therefore God acts first and foremost, not exclusively, but first and foremost for the sake of his glory. We looked at verses that showed us that God created us for his glory, 
We saw verses that saw that he withheld his wrath from the Israelites for his glory. God ordained salvation for his glory. Jesus went to the cross for his glory. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit as Christians for his glory. And Jesus taught us to pray, staking our prayers on the glory of God. I mean, this is something that even though, as you, I'm sure maybe even you read your, your Bible reading this week, you start to see like, oh man, it says that was for God's glory. Oh man, that was for God's glory. It's something that maybe has been in front of us for a long time, but maybe it hasn't been talked about a lot, right? And so if this is you, um, you're probably in the boat with many people where you're like, this might have been the first week where you really started wrestling with this truth. And as you wrestle with this truth, there's likely a couple of big questions that you came up against in your mind. And so we want to look at those this morning. And the first question that comes up as we study the fact that God does things primarily for his glory first is this. If God loves his glory above everything else, isn't that selfish, egotistical behavior, right? That's one of the questions that gets asked. And so if we consider... Um, our first verse from 1 John 4, what do we see it teaching us? The whole verse is basically teaching us this, that God is love. It's his character. It's who he is. And so really what comes under attack as we wrestle with this question is whether or not this is really true, right? Is God really love? And if God is love, is his love any good, right? Should we want God's love if that's the kind of love that he's going to give us, where he actually loves himself First, that's the question that we're wrestling with. And so it's a fair question. It's good to wrestle with, but we have a good answer. And we're going to start here with this, and hopefully you can follow me on this. God's passion for his glory is the essence of his love for us, right? Selfishness, egotistical behavior, those aren't love, And so what we're trying to see right here is, does God love us with a pure and perfect love, right? And what I'm saying is, yes, yes, God does. God loves us with a love that's rooted in himself first by loving his own glory. And in fact, I want to show you that this is a good thing. It's not just a good thing. It's the best thing. It's the best way to be loved by God. But before we can get there, we need to um, wrestle with our perspective of love first and look for a more biblical definition of love than sometimes what we think of when we hear the word love. Um, John Piper's done a lot of work on this, so some of the stuff that I'm sharing um, is coming from him. Just so you know, here's a quote that he gives. It says this, love labors and suffers to enthrall us in what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, God. Therefore, God's love labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focuses our affections on the treasure of God. Is that not amazing? When God loves us like this, right? He's not being selfish or egotistical. He's doing what's best for us. He's doing what's best for your soul. That's what I want you to know this morning. And he knows what's best for us. Why? Because he created us. Right? He is our creator. He knows that the only place that we're going to find true joy, the only place that you're going to find true peace is in him and him alone. Amen? Amen. And our souls testify to this fact, don't they, Christians? Right? If you're a Christian in this room, you can testify that this is true. 
right? When I look back on the most joyous moments of my life, or when I look back on moments of pure and true peace, there's one common denominator, and it's God, right? In those moments where I felt pure joy, is that's the moments that I was resting in God, or being obedient to God, where my soul was satisfied in God alone. And if you look back on those moments in your life, I guarantee you, you will find the same thing as Christians. And I want to give you a biblical example of this, where we see this concept in God's word. If you look at John chapter 11, um, we have the story of Lazarus. And at the start of John chapter 11, it says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who was anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And if you remember the rest of the story, you know that, yes, Jesus did stay there two days longer, and then eventually he goes to Lazarus, but Lazarus has already died. But Jesus raises Lazarus back to life from the dead. But I want you to see three things here quickly. They're not in order, but they're important to our text. The first one's this, right? It's the most obvious one in the green there in verse six, right? We see that Jesus chose to let Lazarus die, didn't he? Because what do we know about Jesus? He could have spoke and healed him. He could have teleported there and healed him. He could have just got on that donkey as fast as possible, got there hopefully in time and healed him, right? Jesus had lots of options at his disposal to heal him in that moment, to take away his pain and suffering, and yet he chose not to. That's point number one. Look at number two in the yellow at verse four, right? This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That there was a purpose in why this pain came into Lazarus's life. And it wasn't for him, it was for God's glory. But here's the kicker, right? The part that we're all wrestling with. Look at verse five. What does it say? It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So these actions, he actually acted out of love. Look at what it says. So Jesus loved, um, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. And then look at the connecting word, right? All you hermeneutics people. Look at verse six. What does it say? It says, so. So he loved them this way. So, and then here's the actions. He loved them enough to do what? To allow them to die? That's what the Bible says just happened. Is this how we as Canadians would define love? Right? Even us as Christians, right? Is this how we would define love? Or if this happened this week and you picked it up on the news or read about it in the paper or saw it on Instagram, how many of us would murmur and gossip about Jesus and say, his so-called love, he allowed Lazarus to die. Jesus did it on purpose. He could have saved him. Jesus' so-called love allowed pain and grief into that family. He could have saved it in an instant. This doesn't feel like love. But I want to encourage you Christians to recalibrate your definition of love to the Bible's view of love, right? And this is one of the implications of last week as we learn that God does things for his 
glory. See, as people, most of the time, and I would encourage you to think about this in your own head, I think most of the time our definition of love revolves around having the least amount of pain and suffering. Doesn't it? A lot of time, don't you measure yourself as a parent by how little or how much, like if you can keep your kids from pain and suffering and give them comfort, now we feel like we've really loved them well, right? Or someone will love you well if they don't bring pain and suffering into your life or they don't bring conflict into your life. Those are the people we feel like they love us well. But Jesus acted, look at how Jesus acted. He acted to reorient his friends' hearts, didn't he? So that the glory of God was more important than anything. That's how Jesus loved there from verse five to verse six, the link. That's how he loved, right? To reorient their hearts that they would see that God's glory, that they would know God's glory more and that was more important than anything. And Jesus actually gave us the greatest example of love. Jesus showed us that real Pure, true love is doing what it takes, right? Even being beaten, torn, whipped, nailed to a cross. Why? To die? To help people not only see, but experience the ultimate joy of savoring the glory of God forever. Brothers and Christians, this is how he loves. And so the answer to this question, this first one that we're wrestling with, the answer is no. Right? It's not selfish. It's not egotistical. I want you to think about this for a second, right? Because he's, he's, what I'm trying to get you to see is that it's actually the best thing for us. I also want you to think about this. If God made us the ultimate purpose, right, the ultimate end for his love, if we were the ultimate object of his love, God would be committing idolatry. Would he not? Placing glory where it's not deserved, right? And that would actually be destructive to our souls because it would move us away from, not towards where ultimate joy and peace and satisfaction are found because that's in God and God alone, is it not? And so for God to love us this way, it's not selfish. When he loves us out of the overflow of his love for himself, it's not selfish, it's not egotistical, it's what's best for us. It's pure love. God is love, like 1 John 4 says. What about the second one? What about the second question? This is the other one that probably comes up, doesn't it? So basically the first question deals with God and his motive to love, his love coming from his end, who he is. And the second question is basically the, the opposite, right? It's asking us in reference to how we feel in receiving his love, right? How do we respond to this love? Doesn't it feel cheapened if, God's gonna, if we know that God's ultimately loving himself first? Doesn't that feel like that cheapens how we receive his love? Here's the argument I'm making. It's our title. God's way is the greatest way to be loved, and I want to show you what I mean. Here's our other verse from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Um, he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I hope this verse makes your jaw hit the floor. Doesn't it? You should have tingles in your arm, tingles in your spine. 
right? It should cause your heart to stand in awe and wonder of God that the creator of the universe, right? Holy, righteous, just, all-powerful, all-knowing, wonderful, merciful king over everything would rejoice over me. Wow. Is that not crazy? It's absolutely mind-boggling. It feels impossible that God would delight in us. It feels impossible that God would rejoice over us, that God would make much of us, knowing what we deserve, right? We know our sin. We know what we deserve. And yet God would rejoice over us, that God would make much of us. It's crazy. It's crazy. And being really honest um, with you, this truth right here, I think is the truth that probably causes the biggest paradox in me. Not that it's right, right? Right thinking is that I would accept both of these truths absolutely perfectly. That's right thinking. But being honest as we wrestle through life, this is one of the truths that makes, creates the biggest paradox in me. Because I'm not always comfortable with this truth. See, because my perfectionist side knows that I don't deserve it. And my theological self knows that I don't deserve it. And yet my heart is so, so grateful that it's true. And that causes a tremendous paradox in my soul. And I don't know about you. I don't know where you're at on this. But a lot of the time I think we're really bad, or maybe you're a lot better than me. I know I'm really bad at accepting both truths. Right? Because a lot of times we can lean to one side or the other of these things. We can not let this truth of ourself of, of what God does about us thrill our soul, right? That God would rejoice over us just because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we know that we really don't deserve it. Or we can use this truth as a license to sin and say, God's rejoicing over me. I can do whatever I want. Neither are good, right? We want to be in the middle. But I would encourage you to wrestle with that. Right? Here's what I want you to know about everything. It's absolutely true. Look what God wrote to you, Christians. God makes much of you, and I want to show you what I mean. So the first point in the number series that I'm making, we already saw it. God makes much of us by rejoicing over us. And I want to show you a number of different places, not just this one, where God makes much of you as Christians. And um, I've made some adaptations to these, but the general thrust is coming from a book called Brothers We Are Not Professionals, just so you know. I didn't make all this up. Someone much smarter than me did. Um, number two, God makes much of us by making us fellow heirs with his son who owns everything. What a wonderful truth. What about number three? God makes much of us by having us sit at the table when he returns, and yet he serves us as though he were the servant and we were the master. Christians, God makes much of us. God makes much of us by appointing us to carry out the judgment of angels. Crazy. Isn't it? God makes much of us Christians. God makes much of us by ascribing value to us and rejoicing over us as his treasured possession. God makes much of us by giving us a glorious body like Jesus' resurrection body. And perhaps most amazingly of all, God makes much of us by granting us to sit with Christ on his throne. Right, you can look up these verses later. I'm going to have Alyssa post the slides so you don't have to write them all furiously. You can look them up. But we are destined 
to share in the governing of the universe and to sit with Christ beside him on his throne when what we deserve is death. Does that sound like cheapened love to you? Everything that I just laid out to you, does that sound like cheapened love to you? No, it doesn't. This is a greater love than anything we could ever imagine, that God would make much of us knowing that we don't deserve it. And yet over and over again, he would choose to make much of us and he rejoices over us. And why does God remind us, right, over and over again, that he makes much of us in a way that's ultimately designed to bring um, glory to him, right? Ultimately to make much of him, right? That's what we looked at last week. He does this because it's the greatest way for us to be loved. And so we make our way back to our question, right? And you say to me, Mark, kind of feels like you've danced all around it. You've shown me that the God of the universe rejoices over me. You've shown me how the God of the universe makes much of me in so many different ways, right? If I'm a Christian, but you haven't clearly answered the question. Um, You're right. So here it is. Are you ready? It's this. God's love for us that makes much of us for his glory is a greater love than if he ended by making us our greatest treasure rather than himself. Making himself our end is a greater love than making us his end. I want you to look that over. Let it sink in for a second. I know it's wordy, but it's true. That's absolutely true there. And you say to me, Mark, why? The reason is this. That self, right, us, no matter how glorified by God, no matter how much God makes of us, no matter how much God rejoices over us, that's never gonna satisfy a heart that was made for God. Our hearts were created to be satisfied in God and God alone. And every time you don't feel satisfaction, that's the reason why. Because you're not finding your satisfaction in God. And so God, in his great, great love, is not going to let us settle for wonderful, happy thoughts of self, right, of who we are, right? Even wonderful, happy thoughts, knowing that God delights over us, those are good things. It's okay to feel happy about that. That's awesome. But it's not the end goal. Instead, what he does is he loves us out of the overflow of himself, which is the only right place for his love to be, in order that his love for us may cause us to walk in unison in doing everything for his glory. And that's the best way to be loved because it's the only way that your heart and soul will be satisfied. This is why he loves us this way. And so that's the answer to those two questions. I want to give you one pastoral implication as we close. Um, because we spent most of our time today doing our implication from last week, right? We spent basically the whole time talking about God and not really a lot about us, right? But I want to give you a little lit- litmus test here. You can read it with me. Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you and rejoices over you or because God at, at an unfathomable cost sent his son to die in your place and come back to life 
so that you could experience the ultimate joy of making much of him forever. What makes you feel more loved by God? Is it how you feel or what he has done for you? Because I'll be honest with you, and I think you guys know this because I've told you this before. I am more concerned with people that think that they are Christians who feel loved by God and yet they're bound for hell than those who are genuine Christians who struggle to feel loved by God. Both are important, but there's an eternal weight, a special weight that I feel for these hell-bound Christians. And I just pray that it's not you. And if this is you, if I'm talking to you today, if God's talking to you, it's because I love you deeply and I wouldn't wish the path that you are on on my greatest enemy. There is nothing worse in all of eternity than believing you are saved, believing you are a Christian, and walking up to heaven's gates only for Jesus to say, away from me, I never knew you. And yet for so many Christians, or Christians in churches, this is their destiny. People who would say that they're Christians, and I'm saying, may this not be yours. Because millions and millions of so-called Christians have bought into a false gospel. They've bought into the false idea that becoming a Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you've always wanted before you were saved. Did you hear that? Becoming a Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you want, you've always wanted before you were saved. That's the lie. It's a bold-faced lie. And yet it's tricked so many people. Hear me out. I'll give you an example. If you want wealth and your soul craves wealth, right? So you turn to Jesus, right? So instead of relying on yourself to get wealth, now what are you doing? You rely on prayer and obedience for God for wealth. But what are you ultimately still seeking? What ultimately still satisfies you? Wealth, not God. Right, and we can do this for so many things. If you want to be a better person, or you want a better marriage, or you want to be a better parent, or you want to stave off loneliness, or you want to escape the guilt of your past, you turn to Jesus for these things looking for a fix. But ultimately, your desire is just to fix these things, to help these things. You don't want God. There's been no change in your heart to what ultimately brings you joy. That's what this is getting at. You can't get joy from God and God alone. And that's snake oil, right? It's a false gospel. We can't buy into that. See, Christians, the mark of a Christian is that you're striving to love God more than anything else. And this is a fight, right? I'm not saying be perfect at this, right? Because nobody's perfect at this. I feel my soul, it's a war, right? Constantly finding myself loving these things more than God, but it's got to be a war in your soul, right? Because here's what happens. You need to look back on your life and see change and see progress in this area. And if that's not true, I would beg you to examine your heart before God. You should be able to look back on things that you used to love, that you used to be satisfied in, and now they don't matter to you at all. Why? Because Christ is enough. 
So I would encourage you, I would beg you to think hard about this question because it gets at the heart of the matter of where does your soul find satisfaction? Do you have any of those greatest moments of your life where you found joy, where you found peace in God and God alone? If the answer is no, I'd love to sit down with you. We need to look at things in your life. Because when the Holy Spirit changes us, he gives us that desire to love God above everything else because he knows that's what's best for us. That's why he loves us this way. I've also got some homework for you. I used to be a teacher. Uh, Here's the question. What does it look like for you to live with a new definition of love? Right? In that verse in 1 John, we see right? That because God is love, we are to change how we interact with each other. So what does it look like for you as a Christian to love one another, to love the church, and for you as a Christian to go and love your neighbors? But it's in light of the understanding of the love that we've talked about today, of how God loves us, about how God has chosen to love us in that great way, right? This is the question, right? This is what we're looking at that we don't often think of when we think of love, that love labors and suffers to enthrall us is what, with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying God. Will you love your kids this way? Will you love your spouse this way? Will you love God's church this way? Will you love your neighbors this way? This is the question. Let's pray and then we're gonna take communion together. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us with the greatest love, a love that flows first and foremost from you, a love that is absolutely pure, a love that points us to what is best for our souls, and that's you. God, would we be encouraged today by this truth that the God of the universe would rejoice over us? Would we be challenged today by this truth to look at what our hearts are really satisfied in. Is it you and you alone? Because God, I confess that so often it's not. So often I fail. And yet I also thank you and praise you for those times in my life where yes, that is true, where my satisfaction has been found in you and you alone, there's no greater time in my life. And I look forward to heaven one day where my satisfaction will be found in you and you alone always. No more sin to get me off track. No more sin to point me away. Just to stand before your throne and worship you, God. To work for you, Lord. It's gonna be absolutely incredible. I cannot wait. But while we wait, God, would you give us greater and greater glimpses as we strive to do this, God, not alone, but together as a church in the power of your spirit, in your great name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.